And uh, what a joy, again, it is to bring God's word this morning. And so if you haven't already, uh, let me encourage you to turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, as that's where we're going to be. And as you are turning there, I want to start us with a question. I want to ask a question. And that question is, what is God's purpose for the church? What is God's purpose for the church? As I was praying over these last few weeks, months or so, uh, on what to preach this morning, Ephesians 3.10 kept coming to mind. And as I thought about it more, and as I think about our culture's view of the church, I became very concerned. Became concerned because many people in our culture don't think that there's any purpose to the church. They don't think that there's any purpose in the church. Like, why do churches gather? Why are we gathered this morning? And why is our congregation, Congress Heights Community Church, going to be gathering this afternoon at 2.30? Like, what are we doing? What is the point to gather here to worship Christ? I even think maybe how some of you may have come this morning or some that you may know who are struggling to understand what the purpose of the church is. Maybe you've come this morning and you don't seem too excited about the church. You've come and you're like, you know, I I know I need to come. I don't feel quite excited this morning. There's a lot of different challenges that have happened throughout the week. A lot of different things going on in my life. You've come, maybe, weighed down with burdens, with sin. Maybe you're here and you think that the church is born. You think that what we have been doing by singing praises to God, praying to God, and reading God's word, and now as I'm proclaiming God's word, you may think that this is not cool, that there's some boring aspect to it. Wherever you may fall on that spectrum, wherever you may land on those list of specific things, I want to show you from our text this morning what God thinks about his church, what he says about his church, and what his purpose for the church is. So in our text, we find God's mission statement for the church, if you will. So before we dive in, let me ask God for his help again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. I thank you for how you've already been working in our time uh, through the singing of the Bible, through the praying of the Bible, through the reading of the Bible, and now through the preaching of the Bible. I pray, God, that you would help us to hear from you. I pray, Lord, speak. And may we listen. May we obey. Would you stir our affections this morning more for Christ? Maybe even for some here this morning for the first time. Give them affections for Christ, a love for Jesus, for his word, and for the church. I pray that you would increase and that I would decrease. And that your word will do the work in all of our hearts in every way that you see fit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Ephesians 3.10 reads as follows. It says, so that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So something we do at CHCC is that after I read the text, I'll say, this is God's word, and you'll say amen. So this is God's word. Amen. Amen. So a little context on the book of Ephesians. As you may know, uh, that the Apostle Paul is the author of this letter. and He is writing to the church at Ephesus where Timothy... Uh, one of Paul's protégés, someone he put in a spiritual headlock, a disciple in headlock, and discipled him. And uh, he is the pastor of this congregation. And in the first three chapters of this book, Paul has been dropping beautiful doctrine. He's been, yeah, teaching beautiful doctrine about who God is and His glorious salvation. Then the last three chapters are about how to live out those glorious truths. And so that's the way the the book is broken down. And when we get to our text here in chapter three, Paul explains the mystery of the gospel that God had revealed to him and that he, Paul, had shared with the church at Ephesus. So in verse six, if you just look up in chapter three, look at verse six, Paul tells us what that mystery is. What does he say? He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What this means is, at one point, is that Gentiles, non-Jews, which is all of us practically, didn't have the same access to God in the same way that the Jews did. This is what Paul spent time teasing out in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I won't read the whole passage I'll encourage you uh, to read that sometime today, if you can, or this week, just to get the, the, the full grip of this. But listen to verses 12 through 13. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, these are some of the the most beautiful words in Scripture. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is everybody's biography here. Everyone who has trusted Christ, this is your story. This is my story. That at one time, I was separated. You were separated from Christ. You had no hope in the world. You were headed to destruction, to hell. But God in his love, in his kindness, through his son, for those who were once far off, have been brought near. He's brought us near to him. He's made us one with him through the blood of his son. What Jesus has done is so dope. What he has done is so amazing. It's so wonderful. He made a way for all people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities and races to experience salvation in him. He made us one in him and has made us one with one another. Only a great God could do that. Only a gracious God could do that. So if I had to summarize this passage, if you're taking notes, and I think they may 
be popped up on the screen as well. If I had to summarize this passage, it may go something like this. And this is also in your bulletin as well. God's wisdom and salvation has been made known to us and is being made known through us to the heavenly beings. I'll say that again. God's wisdom in salvation has been made known to us and is being made known through us, the church, to the heavenly beings. And so this main idea broken down will serve as our two points this morning. And here they are, point one, God's wisdom in salvation made known to us. Number two, God's wisdom in salvation made known through us to the heavenly beings. Let's look at the first one together. God's wisdom in salvation made known to us. Look back with me at the text. It says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So this implies that before he made his wisdom known to the heavenly beings, that he first made it known to human beings, right? To his people, to the church. So then what is the church? Well, it's the the people of God, universal and local, those who have saving faith in Jesus, who gather regularly to worship Jesus and rightly practice the biblical ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. God made his manifold wisdom known to his people, to the church. This wisdom is multifaceted or has a rich variety and is multicolored, as two other translations put it. Essentially, what this means is, is that God's wisdom has many layers to it or has many sides to it. It's like if I were to hold up a diamond right now and to, to turn it at each side, <clears throat> the light would be ricocheting off of this diamond, just displaying rich color, an array of colors, just beauty and gloriousness at each turn as I were to do that. Well, in a greater sense, so it is with God's wisdom, with his manifold wisdom. At each turn, there's glory to behold. Glory to behold. This is exactly what Paul gets at, at in Romans eleven thirty three. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We know this to be true, don't we? We know that God's ways are higher than our ways. That his wisdom is unending, whereas ours is uh, unending or ending and limited. His is unending and unlimited. But God, in his kindness, when we are in need of wisdom, he just tells us to ask him. He'll give it to us. He'll grant it to us. James 1, 5, it says, And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It's the type of wisdom when, uh, for those of you, High school students who have graduated and are heading to college or already headed to college is that type of wisdom that you were looking for, that you were seeking to to understand what what university that you might attend. Seeking wisdom, your family and you seeking wisdom 
on what college to attend or for any person here wondering what job opportunity to pursue next year. In between jobs, you're, you're wondering where the Lord might lead you next. And he's like, well, come to me. I'll give you wisdom for those things. Or if you're here and you have a big family decision to make, God wants you to come to him and ask him for wisdom. and He will give it to you. Here's how the Oxford Dictionary defines wisdom. It says the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. The quality of being wise. That's wisdom. So God's manifold wisdom has this side to it for sure. It has this side to it for sure. But in the context of this passage, Paul is unveiling, he is revealing something more specific. What is that? Specific things that wisdom about God's salvation through his son. This is what he's unveiling. This is what Paul has been teasing out from the beginning of chapter 3, Ephesians 3, that in God's wisdom and grace, he revealed his son, Jesus, who made both Jews and Gentiles one body in and through the gospel. This is the wisdom that he has made known. So you put this all together and essentially what we learn is that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is God's manifold wisdom that's been made known to us. Paul says this exact thing in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 24. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the manifold wisdom that God has made known to his people. This is the good news that every Christian here and around the world has believed and was granted saving faith in Jesus and brought into the universal church and has rumber stamped their belonging to the universal church by committing to a local expression, a local family, a local church. And it's this same message that can save anyone here who has not put their trust in Jesus yet. Agree with God that you are a sinner. Agree with God in his word this morning that you are fallen, that you are sinful, that, yeah, God created you and all of us in his image after his likeness, but you have turned aside to God. You've turned to your sin and you've turned away from God. You are fallen. I am fallen. And because of our fallenness, because of our sin, we deserve God's righteous and right judgment. Which would be if he were to judge us in our sin. We would be cast away from his presence from all of eternity. Never to have an opportunity to trust him and to believe in him by faith. But praise God that the story does not end there. Praise God. It could have. 
But it doesn't. God, in his love, in his grace, in his kindness, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to come do what you and I couldn't do. And that's live a perfect, sinless life. And to die a death on the cross for our sin. For Jesus had no sin for which he had to die for. He went to the cross willingly and willfully for you and for me. And he was crucified. He died and he was buried in a grave. But on the third day, he was raised from the grave, offering life, eternal life, to all who would turn from their sin and turn to him by faith, by trust, by belief, by putting all of your eggs in his basket, trusting in only what he has done alone. And the Bible says, once you do that, you can be saved. You can be forgiven of all of your sin. You can be cleansed. You can be made right with God. That relationship that was broken can now be restored in Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe upon the Son and receive eternal life. If you would like to learn more about that this morning, uh, talk to any of the pastors here. Talk to the Christian friend who invited you. I know it would be their joy. Come see me after the service. It would be my delight to, to talk with you about what it might mean to start your journey with the Lord. Don't delay. The next moment, the next hour, tomorrow is not promised. May today be the day of salvation for you. And for Christians here, this is the wisdom that God wants to remind you of, to refresh you in this morning. And to have you relish in this morning. As John Piper says, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. So Christian, this gospel is for you. It's for me. May you feast upon it this morning. May you receive it like manna from heaven this morning. Feast upon it. Love it. Bear hug it. Cherish it. It is your only hope. Believe it afresh this morning. Rest in it. So that's number one. God's wisdom and salvation made known to us. Here's number two. God's wisdom and salvation made known through us to the heavenly beings. Look back with me at Ephesians 3.10. It says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Again, we find God's mission statement for the church here. God has a purpose for his church, and that purpose is to display his manifold wisdom and salvation to his people, and now, as we'll see, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Scholars believe that the rulers and authorities here refer to good and bad heavenly beings, but as one scholar puts it, he says, the apostles' particular concern is obviously with hostile forces. I mean, Paul even spends time later in the book of Ephesians telling the church how to go to battle with these hostile for forces, right? So Ephesians 6.10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then following after that, he details God's weaponry and armor of choice in the verses to follow, right? And Nathan even was talking about that and praying through that earlier in the service, but putting on the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes for your feet, right? The sword of the spirit to go to battle with these evil forces in the heavenly places, but most importantly, to be strong in the power of his might, not yours, right? But these angels and the demonic forces see our salvation from a different vantage point than us believers, don't they? They see it from a different vantage point. The angels are like window shoppers looking in the window you go to. So if you go shopping, uh, you go to the mall and you walk by the different stores and you see these shoes. Like I love Jordans or I'm a big Ellen Iverson fan. So I love Ellen Iverson shoes, things along those lines. So if I see those, I'm like, man, like, like I, I want those, but I don't, I don't have the money to get those right now. Like you're window shopping. And essentially, the angels are looking in through the window. They're looking in at our salvation, wanting what we have, but will never be able to experience it in the same way that we do. This is what Peter gets at when he speaks about the angels looking on at our salvation. First Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. They're trying to get a glimpse of something that they'll never be able to see. They're peeking around the corner trying to look into the salvation that you and I have. Ah, the angels long to see it, saints. They long to see the salvation that you and I have. The demonic forces, on the other hand, see God's manifold wisdom as a threat. Them seeing what God has done in and through the church is a sign of their demise. They look on with fear and trembling. Satan and his demonic forces have already been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the existence of the church tells them, announces to them, heralds to them that their reign and their rule is coming to a full stop once and for all. That they will be completely done away with. So them seeing the church is a sign of their demise. This is what Jesus gets at it in Matthew 16, verse 18. What does he say? He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Saints, God is doing something amazing with the church. He is doing something glorious with the church. He is doing it big with the church. There is more going on than our eyes can see. If you are a part of the church, you're a Christian, you're part of the church, I love how One scholar puts it, he says, 
you are part of a cosmic sermon that is being preached to the spiritual rulers and authorities. You're part of a cosmic sermon that's being proclaimed to the spiritual rulers and authorities. He continues to say, he says, this wisdom is so great that God uses it to proclaim to the heavenly beings. His grace and glory are displayed in a diverse people, a many colored fellowship, a multicultural and multi-ethnic fellowship who have been called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive, and united in Christ. The angelic hosts look on at the reconciling work of Christ, which is the model for the reconciling of the universe when everything in heaven and earth will be brought together in him. Do you long for that day? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. He's coming back to make all things new. We promised in Revelation 21 that he's coming back to, to, to wipe every tear from our eyes. You're grieving this morning. You lost loved ones. You've lost friends. Jesus is coming back to wipe every tear. Grief will be no more. Death itself will be no more. You're battling with sin. You're struggling with sin. Sin will be no more. He's already saved you. He's already freed you. And one day he's going to completely do away with sin once and for all. Death once and for all. Satan once and for all. Amen. And you're going to be able to be with him. To see him face to face. To worship him at his feet for all of eternity. This should excite you this morning. This should give you hope this morning. Hope this morning. Hope for tomorrow. Hope for the future. That this is where we are heading. This is where history is heading. All roads are leading to Jesus' return. When he returns, oh, what a glorious day that will be. Will you be found ready? Be found ready. This earth is not your home. Don't get comfortable here. As someone said, we should be living out of our suitcases. This is not our home. Jesus has a better home for us with him in heaven. Be encouraged, saints. Keep your eyes towards heaven. Keep your hope towards heaven. So this is no small thing that God is doing, has done with the church. There's nothing boring about this. Nothing boring about salvation. From him taking those who were dead in their sins and trespasses and bringing them to life. And doing that with a group of people and bringing them together, making them one and making them do life together as a church to to do life, to love one another, to be on mission together. This is what you all are doing here in restoration. This is what we're doing in Southeast. This is what God has done. So if you find that this seems to be 
out of touch for you or maybe something that you're not interested in this morning, my dear friend, if that's you, you're in danger. You're in danger. You may not have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But the good news is you can. You can taste and see that the Lord is good through the gospel, through turning from your sin and turning to Christ and believing upon him and becoming a part of his family, the church, where you get to do life, to grow and be on mission together. So toward that end, I want to offer just a few ways to apply all of what we've been thinking about this morning as we come to a close. Non-Christian, again, I, I want to plead with you. I want to implore you to go before God right now. To go before him and ask him to open up your eyes to his wondrous salvation. To who he is and what he's done for you. He will. He promises to do so for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. They will be saved. Call upon him this morning. And be saved. Two. If you're here and you are a Christian, but maybe you've lost the fire for the church's purpose in your life, I would plead with you to do the same. Pray. Pray. Ask God to help you. Ask God to give you a fresh and higher view of his church this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're a Christian but you've been dealing with some church hurt or maybe you're not a member of a local church. Church hurt is real. So in, in, in no way am I trying to downplay this or, or make it as if it's not important. It is important. It is real to you for many of us. So I don't want to make it light or make of it light this morning. But I do want to encourage you, if that is you, to give the church a chance again. To give the church a chance again. Maybe the church that you might have experienced church hurt in wasn't a healthy church. Notice I said healthy and not perfect. There are no perfect churches. But there are healthy, biblically faithful, gospel-centered churches filled with messy people bringing their mess to one another and to God. Together, that's who we are. And the way God has designed it is that the church is filled with hurting people. Seeking to help other hurting people find hope in Jesus. So you may find it the very thing that that you are opposed to, running away from, is the very means that God wants to use to help you deal with those things. So lean into God, lean into his plan for you, Christian, the local church. So this is the pathway to healing, the route to finding help, found in Jesus through a healthy, gospel-centered local church such as this, such as Restoration Church. 
So if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to, to consider talking to the elders of this church and, and learning from them what it might mean to become a member and to be a part of this church where you could come and grow and flourish in your Christian walk. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. And find encouragement and joy and satisfaction with the saints together as you seek to know Jesus and make him known more. So, in conclusion, God's view of his church is high. And our view as Christians of the local church should be high. God has revealed his glorious salvation to his people and he displays this salvation through his people to the entire world. Let's pray.